Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Breaching Extinction podcast. My name is Erica Wirth, and I will be hosting this series. For the first episode, I had the privilege of interviewing Sarah Calissimo. She is originally from Melbourne, Australia, but came to the United States to pursue her dream of studying killer whales. She has an undergraduate degree in aquatic and fishery science from the University of Washington and is working as a field research technician on the Southern Resident Killer Whale Project with Oceans Initiative. This is a nonprofit research organization based out of Seattle that focuses on studying marine environmental issues. Can you tell us a little bit about your killer whale story? How did you how'd you come to love these animals? How'd you get into this field? Sure. Well, I have loved killer whales and marine mammals my whole life. Um, it was something that I could never really explain. I didn't grow up right next to the ocean in Australia. I actually grew up more in the bush. <laughs> um, but I just always felt really drawn to the water. Um, was so fascinated by whales and dolphins when I was a kid. And it just kind of grew as I got older. Um, that passion was something that just never really went away. And it wasn't until probably like within the last 10 years or so that I really decided to pursue it. Nice. Um, so I know we talked about this a little bit before the episode, but can you tell me about like your first experience with killer whales? What was that like? Yeah, so I actually worked for a nonprofit in Monterey Bay in California, and it was my first experience with killer whales. And I mean, I had come all the way from Australia and was interested in, in volunteering and learning more about being a scientist and what it was like to be out in the field. And so I got connected and came out to California and sort of waited, you know, a few days. We'd been out on the water, um, had not seen any killer whales yet. And my first encounter with the killer whale was in this like crazy fog. Um, was, everything was completely gray. And I will never forget seeing that big black dorsal fin just slice through the water. And that was such a pivotal moment for me in my career. And also like it made me realize that I could be a scientist because even though I was in awe of this animal, I was still taking data and doing all the things I needed to do to be contributing to science. And that was a really powerful moment for me. And I haven't really looked back since. <laughs> That's amazing. I I love that because um, it's science is so intimidating and like that's part of the reason like for this like podcast is breaking down those like the jargon or whatever issues people have with like you know being in the scientific field it's intimidating so that's really cool that you had that experience. I think that's so cool that you're doing that because that is so important. I think in science we you know, we work so hard to do our science that sometimes communicating our science gets forgotten. Yeah. And that is the most important part. And I'm so passionate about communicating science and making it accessible for people. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. I, it's definitely hard, but yeah, it's, it's doable. So I just got to like reach out to people. Yeah. Um, cool. So what is, um, can you tell us a little bit about um, the organization you work with and the current project that you're doing? Yeah, so I am working with Oceans Initiative. So we are a Seattle-based nonprofit. Um, we also have a counterpart in British Columbia up in Canada. So we're transboundary. Mm -hmm. um, but we basically do work on marine mammals um, on either side of the border because marine mammals don't know that there's an arbitrary right. border. Mm -hmm. um, so this project is on the southern resident killer whales. And we had a project similar years ago and then um, it kind of picked back up again in the last couple of years. So we're a land-based um, field study. So we are actually not another vessel out on the water 
with the whales, mm-hmm. which I like to think is a feel-good study mm-hmm. because we're not adding additional stress to those whales and we know that there's you know already a lot of stresses going on in their environment. So we have multiple field sites on the west side of San Juan Island and we set up um, a theodolite, which is a piece of surveying equipment. And if we know our position, so our Latin long and our altitude, mm-hmm. we're able to use that with a computer program that basically does the trigonometry that you thought you would never use when Mm -hmm. you learned it in high school. And it's able to tell us the exact position of the whales when we focus on them. Mm -hmm. And in turn, we're able to make tracks of the whales' movements. And we are able to identify what behavior they're doing. So by the end of the day, we'll have these tracks of the the killer Mm -hmm. whales' movements and see where they've been and what they've been doing while they've been there in relation to where we are on land. So we're observing them um, without impacting them. Mm And we're showing that you can do good science without mm-hmm. being on the water. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. Um, it definitely seems as though, like, I mean, obviously in science you have to start from somewhere. Um, but it, it seems like we've increasingly been able to find more ways to, like, non-invasively, like, understand these animals. Which is really cool, especially considering they live in the water. Like, you know, it's not... It's not easy to study animals that live in the ocean, so that's super cool. And Um, non-invasive research is so important. I think it it says a lot to be able to study these animals without impacting their lives because we get such a small window of seeing what they do and how they spend their lives. You know, so much of it is spent underwater. So to be able to, to spend that time where we are studying them in a way that's not impacting them or changing their behavior in any way is really powerful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so basically like in this first episode, we just want to give like a baseline of who are killer whales. Like what do they do? Who are the Southern residents? So can you just like give us some basic information about like populations, where these guys live and like, you know, what's going on with the Southern resident killer whales at the moment? Yeah. So killer whales are a cosmopolitan species. So they're distributed all over the world. Um, they range from the Arctic region to the Antarctic region. Um, and all of them are, are unique in their their languages and their diet and the habitat that they utilize. And the southern residents in particular are very unique because they only eat fish. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, killer whales kind of got their name because they eat other whales, right? right? And that's how they were observed years and years ago and how they were sort of first documented. But the southern residents uh, specifically prey upon fish. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know that their favorite type of fish is Chinook salmon, Mm -hmm. uh, especially from the Fraser River, seems to be the origin of choice. Um, So they're very unique. They have, like, a pretty small habitat range Mm -hmm. in that they they can be from, like, the north end of Vancouver Island as far south as Monterey Bay in Mm -hmm. California. But this is a critical habitat area for them on uh, the west side of San Juan Island. It's a key foraging area. And, you know, this is historically where they've been a lot in the summertime. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, so there's been, like, a decline with the southern residents. And is it true it's, like, a, about 150 is, like, a pretty solid, healthy population for a number of individuals? That's a really good question. I'm actually not sure what the carrying capacity mm-hmm. of the southern residents are. Um, but they've been sort of hovering around this, you know, somewhere in the 70s range mm-hmm. for the last few years. Um, their population took a really big hit back in the 70s uh, mm-hmm. when they were exploited for the um, aquarium and um, the aquarium trade. And basically they were put on display. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is how killer whales became so well known, I think, and loved mm-hmm. because they were accessible in places like SeaWorld. And people grew to love them because they got to see them. But it also disrupted a lot of the Kilowell community here and those family relationships. And we haven't really seen that population increase since then. Yeah, it's 
it's definitely like it's it's hard to watch for sure um so what would you say is the biggest issue that these whales are facing right now yeah that's a really good question i think a lot of people want to know what the single most important thing is Mm -hmm. and how we can fix that one thing Mm -hmm. but i think for these guys you know it's very clear from the science that is being done by a multitude of scientists Mm -hmm. in this field that there are so many factors Mm -hmm. that are contributing and i don't think that any one factor is going to be the thing that fixes okay. the population. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to look at it in a, a cumulative sense. So all of these things are contributing. So mm-hmm. we know that prey availability is a really big problem. We know that vessel noise and traffic mm-hmm. is a disturbance to them. And we know that there are a lot of contaminants in this environment. And you know these are things that are legacy contaminants and they live in their blubber for a really long time so when you think about it in the sense that these are all things that are contributing to their mm. decline and then that's not even including other things like mm-hmm. health issues or um you know bottlenecks in in genetics mm-hmm. so there's a lot of things that are affecting them but the three main things are prey vessels and contaminants okay so like a lack of prey yeah lack of prey um so prey availability is a huge Mm -hmm. huge issue especially here we know that salmon numbers are are declining um and you know that has been a result of a lot of things so like dam dams pollution and then of course like increasing climates um sorry increasing temperatures Mm -hmm. in the puget sound and salish sea area so all of those things are contributing to their decline absolutely yeah, it's it's definitely rough and I feel like right now they're like the dams are a particularly hot topic um just because like the salmon can't get through, but obviously like there's a lot of other things that contribute to it as well. Um what do you think it would look like if the dams were not in place for the killer whales? Um I think that this is a really hot issue. Mm-hmm. Um obviously if you don't have these dams in place, you're going to have salmon that are able to move upstream mm-hmm. and spawn and you should see an increase in salmon number um, numbers but you also need to have those salmon to be able to make that possible and mm-hmm. I don't think that that's something that's going to happen overnight right so I think it would make a, a difference absolutely but I think it's also not something that's going to change immediately I think it's going to take time for sure and we can see that with like the restoration of the Elwa mm-hmm. um so that's like a huge success story but that has taken a really long time mm-hmm. to be rejuvenated and any other dam removal I think it will have an a huge impact mm-hmm. but it's not going to happen within you know the next year or so right and might be not enough time for these whales for these whales so do you think that there's like what other solutions or like actions can we take to combat this like since it seems like the the dams are not coming down or at least they're not coming down anytime soon or soon enough yeah i think that it's really important to make sure you're having your voice heard and I think um, the Southern Resident Killer Whale Task Force that was put together by Governor Inslee there was a lot of opportunity for public comment and I Mm -hmm. think that's really powerful to be able to say this is what I care about Mm -hmm. and telling people that can make change Um, then of course there are a lot of things that people can do on a really small level Mm -hmm. that you know you're reducing your environmental impacts you are choosing not to eat salmon from within the Salish Sea mm-hmm. because that might be the salmon that the killer whales are eating. Right. Yeah, you're choosing to not be out on the water and mm-hmm. be an extra vessel that is creating noise and disturbance on them. Right. So there are 
are lots of small ways. Maybe mm-hmm. they're not like you know the the big drastic things that are going right. to see these populations increase, but it's enough to make a difference for sure. What makes the southern resident killer whales different from other whales, and like why are they so important? So they're really different because they are really the only urban population of killer whales in the world. So they really live side by side Mm -hmm. with people here. And I think that's why they are so well known. I mean, they're the best studied population of killer whales. Mm -hmm. I heard about them as a child Mm -hmm. in Australia. You know, that is how I ended up here. Yeah. But they are so well known and so well loved and people are really invested in them. Mm -hmm. Like they are the neighbors of all of the people that live on these islands. Um, So, you know, they're their diet preference, their habitat, their communication, they're very vocal. Um, The transient killer whales who hunt marine mammals Mm -hmm. are much less vocal Mm -hmm. um, because they tend to be more stealthy when Mm -hmm. they're hunting, whereas these guys are hunting fish, so they communicate a lot. And then the fact that they also have this culture, Mm -hmm. um, I think that's one of the most special things about them. Like A lot of their behaviors are learned. And we can see that that's, like, been passed down from generations. And, I mean, that is an amazing thing to witness in animal societies. Definitely. I think that they're a really good, like, species for bridging that connection between, like, people and animals being different. Because we're able to see those languages and cultures and things like that being formed and the relationships that they build with, like, their children. It's remarkable, honestly. I don't... I can't think of another species that has formed a relationship quite, like, the same way that these whales have with people, which is, like... So cool. Yeah, and I think that's why people connect with them, right? They look at it and and they're able to see, oh, this is like a mother and a calf and this is relatable to me because of whatever reason with their, you know, family connections. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what makes them so unique Mm -hmm. and so special. And I mean, that is why people care, right? Because Mm -hmm. you you care about the things and you want to make a difference to Mm -hmm. things that you love. And Mm -hmm. these whales have been very easy to fall in love with when people travel here just to see them. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I can think of like the few times in my life that I've like absolutely been smitten or felt like I was in love and seeing killer whales for the first time was like easily one of those moments. And it never goes away. (laughs) It never goes away and it never gets old. And like, I remember the first time I saw a killer whale, I, like, came out here specifically to see them, and I was, like, in tears because I was, like, oh, my gosh, like, just, like, starstruck. And, like, I've had even two experiences where I've been on whale watch boats, and they've gotten close to us, and obviously these boats were, like, following regulations and whatnot, but they get close to us and I'm like and sobbing again. I'm like, oh my God, yeah. they're right there. And like, it's just so That's cool. That's really to, special. It is. Like they have such different like personalities and things. And it's like, it's really remarkable. I think there's a lot that we can learn from them. Absolutely. Uh, and they are sentinels for their ecosystem. You know, and learning about them, we can learn so much about the ocean health. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So a lot of people um, probably like don't understand why they can't like, cause there's, are three ecotypes um, and they eat different things. So can you maybe explain what the, like the three ecotypes are and then why like the Southern resident killer whales can't just adapt to eat something that's not salmon? Yeah. Um, so the three ecotypes of killer whales are of course the residents and then we have the transients or the bigs killer whales and offshore killer whales. So the transients are the ones that are the marine mammal eaters. So they will eat other whales. They will eat uh, small cetaceans like dolphins and porpoises. Mm-hmm. They'll eat seals. Um, and then you have the offshore killer whales which specialize on sharks. Mm-hmm. Um, so less is known about them because they are so far offshore. Right. They're uh, way less common and mm-hmm. not as frequently 
as encountered as mm-hmm. we would see residents and even transients here now. This has become kind of like a transient hotspot. Yeah. But the residents um, specializing on fish, you know, we know that they can eat other fish. Mm-hmm. We found very small amounts of it mm-hmm. in their diet, uh, previous studies done by NOAA. Mm-hmm. But they, this is what they eat, right? They right. eat salmon. They mm-hmm. they eat Chinook salmon. They will follow other salmon runs like throughout the spring and, and the fall. Um, and we know that they have eaten uh, pink salmon and coho salmon, but mm-hmm. this is their specialty. Right. And when this is a, a learned behavior, this is cultural. Yeah. Right? This is what they were taught to eat. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to just say, go and eat something else when that is all you know. Right. And I totally agree, right? It would be so great if they yeah. just wanted to eat something else that was super abundant. But right. they don't know how to do that. Yeah. They don't know how to hunt that. Yeah. And also, like, I mean, wouldn't it make them sick, like, to try to eat, like, a seal as opposed to eating fish if that's, like, what they eaten for hundreds yeah, of years. Yeah, and they just don't know how, right? Yeah. They, they don't know how to hunt a seal because mm-hmm. they're talking to each other, mm-hmm. thinking that they're looking for fish, and then the seal hears them and might get freaked out and swim right. away. For sure. Definitely. I hope these answers are okay. No, these are literally perfect. Like, yeah, no, it's good. Just, like, trying to give people a baseline of, like, yeah. you know... Um, well, and also, like, I, I don't mind if I'm, like, not, like, the foremost expert, you know, because I think that's what makes it more relatable. Oh, absolutely. And I, like, that is, like, one of the things in science, which I had that kind of that experience that you did where you're like, oh, I can do science. And I always thought that I couldn't, but I tried anyways because I was like, you know what, like, you know, I'm just going to go for it. Like, I'm just going to yeah. try. And I remember being in the field doing, I um, did some mangrove research when I was at Eckerd College um, oh, cool. with one of the professors. And, like... She was, like, known for being, like, really hardcore and really strict mm-hmm. and, like, extremely precise. And I remember, like, going out and helping her collect data, like, while we were in some, like, mangrove forest. And I'm exhausted and sweaty and, like, climbing through, yeah. like, all of this. And, like, she turns to me and she goes, you're kicking ass. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Oh, like, God, that's so nice. And I was like, this is, like, the best compliment I've ever gotten. <laughs> I was like, if, like... Janine Lessman thinks that I'm kicking ass and she thinks that I can do science, I can do science. And then, like, you know, obviously, like, my passion is animals. But I was like, okay, this is so doable. But it's really intimidating because people are like, you have to go to school for, you know, get, like, three degrees for, like, eight years. And, like, you don't necessarily. There's plenty of scientists that don't have that many degrees or like you know they just like the jargon is it's hard to get past and it's not accessible to everyone which is unfortunate because mm-hmm. like I mean I don't know what it's like in Australia but here in the United States people struggle to like education is not accessible to everyone and yeah. like especially the environmental science field is not accessible to everyone because so many internships are unpaid and like it's just it's hard so like trying to break the barrier and be like i mean it's it's helpful that you don't like that you're not you know the the killer will expert because people people can relate to that definitely yeah so anyways that was a nice little side tangent Uh, i totally agree because like it was so lovely when you said that before and i was like yes like this is what i'm like so passionate about like when i worked for sea shepherd i used to do ship tours yeah and that was one of the best parts of it for me was being able to share what we did and why we did it with people and mm-hmm. make a difference somehow in yeah. their life. Like, even if it was a small contribution, if they went home and stopped using plastic straws, yeah. or if they stopped eating, like, one type of seafood or something that was contributing to the environment, like, that felt really good. Yeah, absolutely. Or, like, just, like, being able to, like, inspire someone. And you never know, because, like, sometimes people won't tell you, like, you know, and, like, maybe you're, like, with that quiet kid or something like that, and then they go home and develop this like obsession 
connection with killer whales or mm-hmm. maybe not even just like interested in the environment in general like it's yeah, yeah it's it's definitely helpful because anyone can be a scientist if they want to you know and yeah. it's just like breaking down those barriers and finding a way to make it more accessible mm-hmm. and you know having that example being able to say this is a scientist because mm-hmm. I definitely didn't have that when I was a kid right yeah. I didn't know what a scientist looked like yeah I didn't know I could do it yeah and like it's important to have like all kinds of like representation I feel like you're able to show people like hey if you re- like you know you can move across the world literally to the other <laughs> side of the planet and study what you want to study if you love it yeah. um very important to follow what you're passionate about absolutely um do you have a favorite pod I mean, I think that J-Pod is probably my favorite only yeah. because I've spent so much time with yeah. them. Um, they have definitely been the one pod that have been in shore most often this summer mm-hmm. and even last summer as well. I think I grew really attached to them too. Last year was a really interesting time to be studying the Southern Resident Killer Whales. There was so much going on. And, it, you know, it's hard to... As a scientist, right, you are taught not to be emotionally invested mm-hmm. in the work you are doing and it's hard. <laughs> you, you want to remain like you know not biased and keep doing good science I think you can still do good science and care about these animals yeah and so you know last year it was really hard not to care mm-hmm. when you're seeing a calf that was deceased and being pushed around by its mother yeah and watching another animal you know just fade away in front of you it's hard not to feel something yeah I think that that's like another really interesting topic in science too is like not like you know not having that emotional attachment but it's like you know you probably entered this field because you fell in love with something and like I think it's really important to keep that love alive because like that's what got you here and like obviously like you don't want to be overly biased but yeah no it's it's extremely hard and like I think studying ocean the ocean in general is maybe harder than some other fields because you're watching something you love like Mm -hmm. die and there's nothing you can like I mean you can do stuff but like there's nothing like you as an individual can do to go solve all of the problems and that's that's hard too um so were you there when she was pushing her calf around Mm -hmm. yeah and what was that like it was pretty awful to see yeah yeah so for those of of the listeners who don't know can you explain a little just give a little background on this situation yeah so last summer um one of the j-pod whales gave birth to a calf Mm -hmm. and within half an hour that calf died Mm -hmm. um and she continued to push her dead calf around for 17 days Mm -hmm. um was known as the tour of grief Mm -hmm. and every time those whales went up and down the west side of this island she was pushing her calf that's rough yeah that's really rough I think that just goes to show that they're they're more similar to people than we expect you know or or than we think because they grieve as well right and then we grieve with them we're grieving that loss like sharing that with them um I mean that was such a remarkable story and I I mean I had so many people that I know back in Australia who didn't even know I was working on this project yeah that reached out to me and had heard about and said hey do you know anything about this whale Mm -hmm. and I was like well this is J35 and this Mm -hmm. is one of the whales I'm studying right now yeah yeah it was definitely really emotional Mm -hmm. because I had you know dreamed about studying these whales and hadn't realized that I would sort of get to this point in my career where I was able to live out my dream here on San Juan Island studying them and then Mm -hmm. to see that it was really devastating yeah no absolutely it's it's heart-wrenching for sure um so I'm sure that there are people that don't really understand the 
like JK and L pod. Do you mind like talking about that for a second? Like who those pods are and like how you know who is who? Yeah. So the Southern resident killer whales have been studied in a census since the 1970s. Um, so every individual is known. Um, we ID them using their dorsal fin and their saddle patch because everyone is unique, just like a fingerprint. Um, so all of these whales are identified and placed in their family groups, so we know all of their family relationships. So there's lots of small family groups uh, based on the matriarch because they are matriarchal societies and they'll stay with their mothers for life. But um, there's sort of like this big overarching family group, so each individual pod, like the J's, mm -hmm. the K's, and the L pod. Mm -hmm. And then when they all get together, mm -hmm. um, this is what we refer to as super pod, which is pretty unique, and mm -hmm. you get to see all 73 uh, endangered southern residents together. That's amazing. That's really cool. I can't remember who said it, but someone quoted and said, like, if these animals go extinct, it'll be the first, like, endangered group of animals where we know every single individual. Yeah. And I think that that's, like, really unique. And it just goes to show people's love for these animals and, like, how well-studied they are. Like, I can't think of a more well-studied animal population in general. Yeah, exactly. So that's something that's really cool. Um, do you have, like, any moments with the killer whales that stand out? Yeah, um, I mean, I've definitely had amazing experiences with transients, which have been very memorable. But as far as the southern residents go, I mean, seeing them for the first time was very spectacular. Mm -hmm. um, but even this field season, we've had a couple really special days. And probably the one that, that stands out to me the most was watching them. They were traveling north one morning along the west side of the island, and we were tracking them, and they we're moving in a resting travel mm -hmm. formation. So really tight dispersion. So they're, you know, so close that they're almost mm -hmm. touching and kind of just logging at the surface, mm -hmm. um, not really moving a whole lot, kind of very sleepy whales. Yeah. And that was just so spectacular to see. I mean, because a lot of the time we see them, there's a lot of boats around them and, you know, they're looking for food and they're sort of all over the place. But to see them all moving in synchronicity like that. Yeah. I feel like that is how I always envisioned the Southern Residence. Yeah. And to see that was truly remarkable. Oh, I bet. That's that's amazing. So do we know where the Southern Residents have gone since they haven't been here? Because they've historically been here. Can you, like, give a brief history of, like, you know, what they've done in the past, like, in the San Juan Islands compared to today? And, like, where have they been? Yeah, so historically, I mean, summertime, basically from... May through September, mm -hmm. this is their critical habitat, and this is where they would spend a lot of their time. But I guess with declining prey, they are not here as often because they're going to be where the food is. Mm -hmm. So we didn't really know where they went in the wintertime, mm -hmm. and then uh, some research that I believe Noah did um, years ago showed their range. So we mm -hmm. know that the extent of their range is from, you know, uh, north end of like Vancouver Island down to Monterey Bay. Mm -hmm. But this summer, we've heard that they've been around kind of out the Strait of Juan de Fuca a lot, spending a lot okay. of time around Swiftshaw Bank. Okay. So, you know, it's kind of like a bittersweet thing, right? Because we know that they have always been here and we love to see them here. Mm -hmm. And this is also for us, this is our, our field site. So yeah. we want to be able to see them here. Mm -hmm. But if they're not finding fish here, it means that they must be finding fish somewhere else. Yeah. So if they're spending a lot of time out at Swishaw Bank, it must be because they're eating. Well, that's good. And yeah. that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I know there were some, like, photos that were circulating showing that, like, the whales were really thin. Um, 
does it look like they've like put weight back on that they're doing better like they're healthier yeah i'm not entirely certain i know that there is more drone studies going on right now Mm -hmm. to look at that so um it's John Durbin and Holly Fernback, and they do that study in May and September. Mm-hmm. So they'll be looking basically now to see the whale's health mm-hmm. at the end of the summer. Mm-hmm. So we'll probably know more about that shortly. But I believe that they were looking pretty good from what I heard. Um, but then, of course, we did have three whales that were pronounced dead yeah. this summer as well because they had gone missing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and it's always really hard to tell. Is this something that's happening at a population level? Is this an individual thing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just kind of one of those things that we just wait and see. See what and happens. hopefully they're doing well. Yeah. I mean, they have had a lot of surface active behaviors this summer that's which is good. like really nice to see lots yeah. of breaching mm-hmm. um so that's always really good mm-hmm. so hopefully if they're doing that it means that they are full of energy and their bellies are full of salmon. yeah definitely i uh feel like there's like a lot of regulations around how we can study them which like understandable because they're endangered and we want to you know protect them mm-hmm. and everything um so, like, what are the different ways that you guys are able to study killer whales? Obviously, we talked about the land-based surveys. Um, like, do you guys do other options? Or what is, has been your experiences with other types of whales, even? Yeah. So, I mean, we also partake in acoustic research. Okay. So, our data, we look at not only the whales' movements and behavior, but we also look at the vessels that are within proximity to them. Mm-hmm. And we're able to use... Uh, basically what the type of vessel it Mm -hmm. is and its distance from the whale to determine the received noise level Mm -hmm. and we can look at you know how that vessel noise may be affecting Mm -hmm. them and then other ways I mean we talked about the drone studies and that's Mm -hmm. looking at their health Mm -hmm. Um, I mean people do biopsies they look at scats Mm -hmm. Um, there's just so many different ways that we can learn about these animals and yet there's still so much we don't know right so I think there are a lot of efforts being put into the Southern Resident Killer Whales mm-hmm. and you know, we're doing the best we can with the funding that we have. Right. And hopefully it will reveal something about their population that will help us conserve them better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so do you think there's anything that we can do like on the individual level, like as people that are just like passionate about whales, like what can we do to try to help these guys? Yeah, I mean, reducing your waste and... I guess, minimizing your pollution output, Mm -hmm. right? Because even though it seems like a really small thing, Mm -hmm. it all contributes to this ecosystem. So even on a very small level, if it's affecting the small forage fish Mm -hmm. that the salmon are eating, that the killer whales are eating, Mm -hmm. it makes a difference. Um, Reducing your plastic usage, so no plastic straws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, advocacy, right? Mm -hmm. That's, like, the biggest, most important thing is talking about the plight of the southern resident killer whales and communicating that the science but also like your passion yeah because you seem like a person that's really passionate about it and i think you're doing amazing things oh, for thank the southern you. Resident wow. killer whales. i appreciate it i'm trying i just like i feel like i have to do something you know because it's hard like you said it's hard to watch like that population die but there's i mean so many people care about these animals like i'm not the only one um Absolutely and not. so i kind of want to be that voice for people and like find another avenue to like reach out I don't know but like you know like you I want to save the whales and this podcast is kind of a journey on like how are we going to do that you know or at least for me just finding out like more about what's going on um and hopefully other people I think that's so great well thank you um yeah I I think that those were all of my questions are there any like final thoughts that you have or like last like 
messages for anyone or any any other silly killer whale stories? Oh, I mean, I have so many killer whale I stories. Mean, we'd, we'd love to hear them, <laughs> yes. Um, I think that the most important thing is that if you feel passionate about something, to follow that, you know, stand up for what you believe in. And if you truly believe that you want to save these whales and you want to make a difference, even if it's small, right? If you're not out in the field, you don't have to be doing that to make a difference. Right. And I think you're a great example of that. So I would encourage everyone to follow their passion because I think the world is a better place when people are following their passion. I think that's like a really good note to end on. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. This is definitely like awesome and I, I can't wait for people to hear it and to like hear Aww. what you have to say. And Thank you. Yeah.